Hello and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name's George. I'm back from holiday. I've had a few days off and I'm joined once again by Chris, a managing director of Guns on Pegs. Chris, what's new since I've been away? <laughs> it's been fairly quiet, George. You haven't missed too much. We've missed you. Uh, it's good to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to know. Um, you've got some news though, haven't you? I do. I've joined the board of the Countryside Alliance, which has been... Um, it's a real honour, a huge privilege. I had a good chat with my dear friend Tim Bonner to talk about various different things and, and he very kindly asked me if uh, if I'd join. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what that says about me or maybe the business or something like that, but um, it's going to be really cool. Obviously, do a huge amount in the shooting world and I think, think from our point of view, without getting sort of too serious on it, the Labour government is obviously a huge threat to shooting and, and uh, with the political lobbying that CA do, it's absolutely vital that uh, we, we keep in their ear because they're going to need to win uh, countryside seats to win an election. So the communication with the Countryside Alliance has to happen for them to be a threat. So, yeah, really, really excited and, uh, yeah, huge privilege. So, yeah, that's what you missed. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. And um, we've got another special guest with us today. We do. As ever, we open the little black book of, uh, of mates in the shooting world <laughs> through various WhatsApp conversations and whatever else. Today, we have with us the, the chap who owns, along with his wife, Selena, the PR agency Tweed Media, and he is also part publisher of the Field Sports Journal and Gundog Journal. So today with us is Simon Barr. Welcome, Simon. Hello, gentlemen. Good to be on here. You're on a bit of a high at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I've been... Uh, <laughs> yes, I've, I've completed a decade-long challenge, um, and some of your readers will be familiar with the McNabb Challenge, which, after my 11th attempt, I managed to get done on Tuesday this week, so a few days ago. Uh, I'm still on a massive high. I've been very lucky to go and do some pretty awesome sporting things in my life but this is without question the one I feel the most proud of it's just such a it's such a crazy thing I try and explain to American friends what the McNabb challenge is and I usually start by trying to explain cricket because cricket is as eccentric and strange as a a concept I think as the McNabb challenge why would you want to try and shoot a stag shoot a brace of grouse and catch a salmon between dawn and dusk in one day and why would we be so motivated to try and go and do that so much so that I've done it near enough once a year every year for 10 years until I finally managed to get it over the line and I think cricket has so many strange idiosyncrasies you know the Ashes series and Duckworth Lewis methods etc there's enough weirdness in both of them <laughs> I think there's quite a nice parallel there so um, yeah the McNabb challenge is kind of it's it's the Ashes series of or it has been for me anyway, it's the Ashes series of, of all sporting challenges. I felt that every single day that I have been in the field, whether it be with shotgun, rifle or fishing rod, since I tried my first time, has been one day closer to me being able to complete it and one day closer to me, or, or I guess one day more of skill in order for me hopefully to complete it one day. So I'm a much better fisherman, shot and uh, marksman than I was when I first started. Well- Talking about a McNabb is a uh, is a nice way to spend an afternoon with a drink. So why don't we just uh, why don't we just go through what we're drinking and then we we'll just sit and talk about McNabs for a bit longer? Let's do that. So um, it was a really nice thing. So the gilly that took me for my fish in the morning, ordinarily it would be customary that you bring the gilly a bottle of whiskey. 
But the gilly on Wednesday morning when I was leaving the Ulster Arms in Caithness came over to me and he gave me a bottle of whiskey. He saw me leave the riverbank at 8 a.m. And obviously news got back that I'd completed the McNabb. But everybody knows that the fish is the kicker and the difficult thing to do. So the gilly came and gave me a bottle of whiskey in the morning, uh, a bottle of um, Highland Park Dragon Legend, because he said what I'd done was legendary, which was very sweet of him. And so I am tucking into um, a glass or a dram of that with um, a little bit of Edinburgh tap water, because that's where I'm sat right now. Oh, lovely. lovely. So that, that's just been opened then? So you've just opened Literally, the bottle for this? I've just opened the bottle for this podcast. Oh, good man. Well, good that man. is a great honour, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I like High- Highland Park. Yeah, I can, sh- I can imagine. And the 11th attempt, I mean, that's a, that's a big one. We'll come back to that in a second. George, what are you drinking? Well, you might remember a few weeks ago, I had a Slovakian drink called uh, Slivovitz, and I was maybe less than complimentary about it. Uh, as you know, Chris, I've just come back from holiday in Slovakia with my wife and her family. And I'm feeling a bit bad because apart from Slivovitz, they do some fantastic drinks. And of course, being having been part of former Czechoslovakia, everybody knows about Czech beer. But actually, Slovak beer is um, hugely under-recognized, I think. So I'm drinking a lager from the biggest brewery in the country. It's called Šarish, which is also the name of the region that my wife is from. And the brewery is just outside her hometown. So I've got a, a pint of Sharish and I'm sort of pretending I'm still on holiday. Fair enough. I was, I was about to Google it. I was getting all getting ready on my keyboard to Google the, the beer that you were you were drinking and then you pronounced it and I got absolutely no idea what to type in. <laughs> all of you boys at Guns on Pegs are always on holiday. You're always drinking beer in the office. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've, we've, got, oh, we've got a whole wall at the back of the office with just random bottles of beer sitting on it. Yeah. <laughs> just for various moments when we want one. <laughs> Chris, what's your drink? So I've got two. One, because it's I've got a short and a long. My long is very boring, but I really enjoy it. Uh, and it's uh, an Adnams Cop House gin and tonic. So that's uh, that's my long. But the real reason for my drinks, my two drinks, is because I have the first pour of the slow gin that I bottled. Not No, not bottled. In Demijohns back in November. So yeah, I've just opened the, the rubber top, the rubber top. I haven't bottled it yet. So it's probably been in the jars too long. I don't know. We'll get some uh, slow gin enthusiasts on uh, letting me know what I should and shouldn't do. But I've done, I've poured a little bit into the glass. Now I haven't put any sugar in it. So the whole point is that if I taste it now for the first time, and it's been waiting now, what's it, 10 months, I'm going to taste it now for the first time. And then I've got to work out how much sugar I need to put in it. So uh, I'm just going to give this a little taste and find out if this is just pure fire water or something else. It it looks pretty good though. Oh, we're onto something. That's really good. Oh yeah, I thought it was going to turn your face inside out. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's pretty warm for a, a first drink in the, in the in the afternoon when you've been sitting at a desk all day. It's not quite the same as Eleventh's out in the field. But yeah, so I'm looking for a bit of advice. Maybe you guys can help me. So I I did it obviously with the slows, no sugar. I'm going to put the sugar in at the end because somewhere online I read that that was a good thing to do. Has anyone else heard of this before? I have heard of it and I've heard an even better solution, which is to actually make some sugar syrup, effectively dissolving a load of sugar in some water. And then you can be sort of more accurate with how much sugar you're putting in because it's sort of pre-dissolved but uh, in terms of quantities i guess you'll just have to add a bit and taste and add a bit and taste and weirdly it doesn't need too much because i think so the whole point of not putting sugar in at the start is that it was using the sugar of the fruit oh simon 
what are your slow gin making skills like? Um, my slow make, my slow gin making skills are called Selena. And I have to say <laughs> that's her department. Uh, <laughs> food, and, food and beverage in the bar household is definitely handled by Selena, uh, with the exception of meat, which is most definitely my department. Um, I just recently bought a, a device called a Big Green Egg. I don't know if you've ever come across one of these. Sorry, this is quite a sidetrack from talking about slow gin, but I love it. I cannot believe. So uh, we shot walked up grouse on the 12th in the borders that evening we breasted them out i backpacked them in olive oil and salt overnight in the fridge i put them in a water bath at 62 degrees i know i have a little sous vide machine 62 degrees for 35 minutes then i put them on the big green egg and i'm not joking i think that was the tastiest game meat i have ever eaten and i have had sort of you know mixed uh, experiences with grouse before there was no bitterness it was just phenomenal and it was like the the salt had uh, taken out any of the nastiness that sometimes you can get or certainly to my palate and then um uh sous vide them had made had cooked them beautifully pink and then just sort of finishing them and grilling them on the big green egg the flavor the charcoal flavor just on the outside Honestly, it was phenomenal. And I would, um, you know, it's, it's taking it to the thin end of the wedge, sous viding and big green egging. But, you know, I like, I love my game meat and <laughs> I've gone as far as I can to kind of enjoy it as much as possible. And sous vide was an obvious step for game birds because it keeps that moisture locked inside them. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something that I found that I was... Are we going to see this recipe in the in the next issue of Phil's book? Uh, I don't know, actually. You know, I follow the recipes and the techniques that the the chefs, the amazing chefs, one chef we use very regularly, Mike Robinson, um, he showed me how easy it was to sous vide things. And you get a, a sous vide device. I bought mine on Amazon, 50 quid. You can stick it in a, you know, a large kind of Le Creuset type pot or a, or a deep pot. It links with your phone so you can say, I want it to be 62 degrees for 35 minutes or whatever temperature you want up to and including a boiling temperature. Um, and it means you can just slow cook meat. But the way that you can cook things, it, it's just taken my culinary kind of enjoyment of game meat to a completely new level. But the, you know, me putting stuff in the magazine, <laughs> yeah, uh, to be honest with you, I think people like Mike are far better experienced and, and qualified. You know, he's got Michelin star restaurants, etc. I, I like to follow the stuff those guys do. And, and, um, and, and you know, we're probably all guilty of seeing lots of recipes and not trying them. But since we've had the magazine for a couple of years, I try every single recipe. And and my skill as a result has has improved to the point where I'm trying new and interesting techniques. And I think my enjoyment of game meat, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, mammal or whether it be bird, it's it's gone through the roof. We, we, we're really enjoying it. And, and actually lockdown for, for cooking has been, you know, it's been amazing. We've had an opportunity to work our way through, you know, most of a big chest, chest freezer of some quite weird and wonderful things. That's a really interesting piece of advice. And actually, this gives me an opportunity to shout out, Chris, one of your other hats. The BGA teamed up with the restaurant Mac and Wild to produce one of these restaurant kits that they kindly sent me to give a go. And Grouse on Brioche, it was just fantastic. So do go and check that out as well at restaurantkits.com. Put the link in the description, of course. Um, but yeah, it's just been a lot of fun during lockdown, sort of experimenting a bit. And as you say, working through the freezer. Yeah, all our game disappeared in about the first two weeks there. Yeah, <laughs> I found we had a lot of sort of nondescript meat, which was, what's this? Where was it shot? When, yeah. how old is it which, which which species is it and the worst one is venison because 
um, I stalk deer all over the UK and we've got lots of, you know, unless you label something when it goes in and normally you're kind of frustrated, you know, you're finishing butchering something and you're just keen to get it in the freezer rather than taking the time to label everything. Of course, it then gets buried and, you know, then you're in lockdown going through a freezer of just unidentified red meat. So we had some quite interesting cuts that we thought were one thing and obviously were something quite <laughs> other. But yeah, it was it was all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just um, before we go back to the enjoyable chat about McNabb, which we must get back to, the, um, just tell us quickly about your uh, your sort of foray with in the last couple of years and, and taking over Field Sports Journal and, and everything you're up to. So Selena's pedigree, she was the news editor on the Shooting Times from 2004 to 2009. She's been in the, you know, publishing sector of the field sports world for over 15 years now and we met uh, and I was running an agency media agency in London at the time this was in uh, mid 2000s and um, in 2008 9 we decided that there was a gap in uh, how some brands were communicating themselves particularly foreign brands that were trying to get to the UK market and we decided that we would pull together you know our skills and create a comms agency which was Tweed Media which is still in operation we've recently relocated it uh, headquartered it to Edinburgh which I, I'm sat in the office now a new office we have uh, a number of clients internationally and in the UK and what our sort of sweet spot has been is helping brands communicate in a language that their customers will understand. So we are extremely passionate about hunting, shooting and fishing. And often people in brands might not necessarily have a practical understanding of how their products are used in the field and what switch might be flicked with how a message is communicated to make that product desirable by the intended audience. So our job is to try and create that desire and create that interest around their products. So that might be generating relevant content of the products being used in the field. It might be helping them put together an exhibition stand in a foreign country they might have decided to exhibit in for the first time. It might be helping them with a kind of digital communication strategy. So a whole manner of things. And that has been very successful. We've had a great time with that and we've enjoyed that a great deal. Through that, we have placed lots of editorial with magazines as PR support for some of their new products. And I was working very closely with the then editor, someone else you've had on your podcast, Marcus Janssen. And, and he actually said to me, listen, matey, I think Mike Barnes, who was the owner of Field Sports at the time, may be interested in, in, in selling. And I don't know whether you'd be interested in having a look at that. I know they'd rather it go to an independent publisher than uh, get swallowed up by one of the big companies and just become another title of many. And Selena and I thought about it and we thought there's just no way that's going to work because we've got a PR agency and comms agency. We can't have two companies that in essence are slightly conflicting. We've got a comms agency and a publishing company, never the twain should meet and it should be church and state. And how can we have an independent agency and an independent publisher it isn't going to work so we thought it through and we figured out a way that uh, we would present it and then i went and raised some financing and that was it we decided to basically have two separate businesses operating out of two separate offices um, one in lincolnshire and one in scotland and scotland is where tweed media is based and and that's how it worked and we've got two separate teams now one doesn't have an office because who has an office these days after lockdown it's all kind of gone virtual and i think you know two years into the journey and since then we also launched gundog journal which has been extremely uh, well received and and 
in, in 18 months has got as many subscribers and as many readers as Field Sports, which is 15 years old. So it, and, and Waitrose have just started selling Gundog this literally in the last couple of days. So from a startup title to now, we've got something which is being sold through in Waitrose. I'm so proud that that's happened. We've been able to sort of demonstrate that Tweed Media operates very independently away from the publishing company and the print titles that aren't littered with Tweed Media client products. It's not a brand magazine for Tweed Media clients. If anybody wants in on the magazines, it's the same for a client or a non-client. And, and two years into it, I think that's been pretty widely accepted by the industry and everything seems to be ticking along very nicely. We absolutely love publishing what we would hope to be the, you know, well, a, a, a high quality print publication. We changed it quite significantly when we bought it. It was it looked pretty similar to some of the other titles that are out there. I'd say the quality level was high, um, but we decided to increase the thickness of the paper, increase the pagination, really focus very heavily on a, 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 you know, a visual journey as much as a written journey so that the design and the photography is really, really important. Um, and you know we can't compete with some other titles on 160 years worth of heritage, but we can compete on quality. And that's what we will always try and do is make sure what we do, we don't deviate from the, the word field sports. We do hunting, shooting and fishing. And that's all we do. We don't do sort of you know stately home bathtub reviews and, and how to make blueberry jam we focus very heavily on hunt shoot and fish and um and, and we're very passionate about that and and that's something that we feel that we can do a really good job of so and um, we've got you know a really good lineup of of contributors we've recently taken an approach of tackling some quite big topics i know you want to chat to me about one of those but that's been a uh, been very positive and a lot of the readers that we have we know don't use social media or don't use digital forums so their uh, interface with the field sports community is through our title and that through our title alone so we feel we've got a bit of a responsibility to our readers to be able to inform them you know in a really really good way with with the the right knowledge to be able to form their own opinions on things so the bit you alluded to which um yeah it's it's obviously certainly got caused a lot of discussion but in a, in a sort of fascinating way i'd say is is obviously the the interview that you had with with chris packham in the last issue yeah I think I, I think certainly I a bit a bit of a sort of right to respond from your part I suppose on on some of the discussion that's been had but um, maybe just sort of give us a bit of an idea on that and because I think there's probably a bit more to it than meets the eye at first yeah maybe. yeah I think so and you know I gave the um, I, I listened to the podcast with Charlie and and you know my intention to come on here wasn't to pick up the challenge and, and come on and, and, and answer what he had to say. I thought it was a bit unfair. And I think what he took uh, from that article was quite out of context. But I appreciate what we do is not going to appeal to everybody. I think from an industry point of view, though, thinking and criticising us as, as, as not thinking it through properly was unfair. Um, this is a it was a six month discussion. It was uh, in consultation with all of the organizations, BAS, GWCT, Countryside Alliance, we spoke to everybody about it. Should we do this? Is this going to cause a problem for the industry? And here's what we're going to do. Here's how we are going to present it. And my rationale for wanting to do it is um, the readers of our title uh, deserve the opportunity to have directly from the horse's mouth verbatim, what is your problem, Chris Packham? Tell us what is your issue? And we got criticized. Why have you given him a platform? We don't give him a platform. The BBC gives him a platform. We are insignificant in number compared to the 7 million followers that he has through social media and through the BBC. In the context of 168 pages, 
we answered a lot of the things that he said, such as Moreland Berling. We had a, a news piece in, in the beginning. There was a piece about raptor persecution. There was five grouse recipes. There was a piece on walked up grouse and why that's fantastic. There was a piece on driven grouse and why that was fantastic. So in the context of the whole magazine, I think all of the things that he had an issue with in the piece that he wrote were answered. And I think what Charlie, I had, I sent Charlie the, the a copy of the uh, article uh, for him to have a look at in advance of its publication. I didn't send him the whole magazine in advance. Also, I think what Charlie missed is that there's a part two of the interview that Owen Williams did, which is coming, and that will be out on the 1st of October. And it's really punchy. I, Owen does a really good job, and I want to make sure we are seen to be absolutely supporting and defending our legal right to shoot. Um, we will never support uh, anybody breaking the law or breaking anything that is deemed to be ethically inappropriate. We would like to hope we're conservative around the ethical topic and we want to make sure that we are promoting the very best practice areas of our sport. And um, and I think that comes through with, with how we handle the part two interview. And what I was so happy with is James Percy, Lord James Percy, who has Linux, which has a grouse moor and a, a lowland shoot, um, he has written a response, and that's this is the context, is that, of course, we were going to respond to the pack and piece, and Lord James Percy has done that so eloquently, and he is, he's, he's picked a line between passion and logic, which is perfect, because there's a logical piece, which I think, you know, there's an argument, um, Packen's argument can be undermined, there's a logical piece there, but there's also a passion piece. Here are the people it affects if you ban it. Here are the schools that will close. Here are the businesses, the ancillary businesses that support the people that are doing anything to do with shooting that will close. It's not just a case of, you know, the the raptor, you know, we're not all raptor persecutors. So, you know, I urge you to uh, buy a copy and I, I didn't do this to sell more magazines. In fact, I think I've probably sold less off the back of having Chris Packham, but I feel very strongly that, well, I think it was a, a bold thing for us to do. And I think it was the right thing for us to do. I also think we did it in a um, cordial way. And I think talking to them rather than slagging them off on social media is better than, than what's been going on. And, and that's why we started talking to them. I've got a, a line into Chris Packham now and I can present him with things and talk to him about them. I'm not saying we're mates, but what I'm saying is I think we've now got an opportunity to engage in a way we've not had before. So those that criticised us for talking to him, I'm not a fool and you know I, I appreciate he he poses the single biggest threat to the things that I love that anybody ever has before in my lifetime. I get that. And I understand and I empathize with anybody else in our sector that has a job or a passion or this, you know, this is this is our world. And he's threatening that. But actually, there are people within our ranks that are threatening it. And he's exposing that. And that's that's the issue. And so, yeah. you know, we, it's it's not a Chris Packham thing. It's actually there are people from within our ranks that are causing us as much problem as, as he is, in my view. I wanted to show him the very best of what shooting is you know and and we've got some things lined up with him uh, where i want to show him functioning shoots the benefits the conservation the spin-off benefits because of this activity the positive biodiversity gain etc etc which is always overlooked and he just focuses on you know what he would deem to be the negative so so anyway long-winded answer but i feel that um uh, i it was very well thought through and um uh, i don't feel that um uh, all of the criticism we received was 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 fair but you know, I knew that we wouldn't um, meet everybody's approval by reaching out to Chris Packham. So, um, yeah, there we go.
I wanted to ask you, obviously it's a bold move for you, but what do you think Chris Packham's motivation was for for agreeing to do the the, um, the interview and, and to write the piece for, for Field Sports? Well, you know, here's, here's something that... Um, Again, everybody's sort of, oh, he's a master at media and he's this just conniving and he's, you know, he's he's leveraging this. I don't think it was any of those things. I picked the phone up to his agent and I said, I'd really like to talk to Chris about some really important topics. And he agreed. I had several calls with him before we got it going. And it was no sort of hidden agenda where he was well i'm i'm able to communicate with the field sports community but they've rejected my claims for a truce and i i, don't, I think we're overthinking it where we, we are giving him more credibility for a strategy that he's playing than i think he's having so you know actually i think he wants to talk i think he wanted to talk now we had a really positive discussion in fact we recorded on zoom the discussion that i had with him and owen williams the three of us talked um, and then I look at the rhetoric, the Twitter feeds, you know, any social media commentary from the 12th of August onwards. And a lot of what he said, the very emotive language that he uses is not doesn't sing true to a lot of the things that he said to me in, and Owen in that Zoom call. And I need to hold him to account for that. I believe he's rabble rousing and using emotive language to try and get petitions, signatures on a petition. Um, and, you know, he claims that he's a scientist and he listens to science and so on. But a lot of the language he uses is, is very emotive. And so, you know, next time I have a chance to talk with him, um, uh, I'm going to hold him to account on that because uh, I'm disappointed that I felt that he was being quite honest with us. And, and I feel that actually subsequently, um, you know, I wouldn't say he's gone back on some of the things that he says, but he's absolutely contradicted some of the things that uh, or exposed himself. Um, he knows that a lot of his followers are animal rights and they don't really, it, it's not the science behind the negatives of shooting that they don't like. They just don't like us killing things. He, I think he doesn't like the science behind the us killing things. It's more the negative impact of biodiversity that he thinks is there. It's not the act of killing something that is his issue. And I truly believe that. And I've had long conversations with him about that. But a lot of his supporters are animal rights uh, uh, activists or animal, you know, they, they support animal rights charities and, and so on. And um, he uses language that speaks to them. And as a result of that, he comes across as much more anti-shooting than I think he actually is. Um, but he's doing that in order to get play to the crowd and get what he wants, which is, you know, signatures on the mm. petition. Um, but, you know, this is a to be continued topic. I am still in dialogue with Chris and I, I hope to continue having a cordial relationship with him because we've never had that. No one's ever taken him on a shoot and said, hey, Chris, look at all these mega things that happen as a result of that pheasant pen. Yes, that pheasant pen over there may be something that you don't like, but have a look at all of these other benefits that are massively outweigh the negative in your eyes of that pheasant pen. So let's talk about those things. And, and you know, if we can do that with him, you know, that might be, and, and then he can communicate that because we can't communicate to his audience. They just think we're bloodthirsty killers. But if he can communicate to his audience some of the good things that we're doing, that's progress. I think that's really, really important. So, yeah. you know, that's what I'm hoping that we can get to a point of is that we take him somewhere, we give him unequivocal evidence so he cannot you know it's irrefutable evidence of here is the positive conservation benefit how can he not then present that to his audience in a positive way 
In the words of the uh, in the the new BBC boss yesterday, if you want to be a partisan campaigner on social media, then that is a valid choice. But you should not be working at the BBC. So uh, we'll see how long that one lasts. Yes, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, there we go. And um, uh, I'm uh, you know please. Uh, the other thing is um, uh, one of the things that Charlie mentioned is that you know whatever we put up on. Uh, online for a researcher to find is then there and they will use things like that you know the video that charlie has on youtube where he fact checks chris which i think is a great resource for anybody and yeah. um, we print magazines that article is not going to end up online it was written and it was in our which you know the, the august september edition that's it it's a printed journal we won't be putting it online it's not going to be available for anyone other than our audience it's not going to live in the ether for anybody to pick up what might be you know statements by packham that they might then read as fact um uh th- that's not not the case so it you know and and part 2 will be available um in our magazine in the october edition and it won't be it won't be going online and it's not that i'm worried about putting it online you know, it's it's for our readers, it's for our audience, it's not for the wider world. And I don't think, you know, someone that's really motivated as an, an anti-shooter will go and spend nine ninety five. And by the way, we are unashamedly the most expensive um, field sports title in the sector because we believe we provide the highest quality uh, and we want to be able to, you know, pay for good content, including talking to people like Chris Packham. Um, uh, you know, I don't think people are going to be that motivated to go and, and spend a tenner on, you know, uh, reading about, um, you know, Owen Williams interviewing Chris Packham. So um, it's, a, it's a closed little group, our world. And, um, you know, I feel that uh, the potential threat of, of it going wrong versus us informing our readers, you know, uh, you know, uh, Charles Moore, and in fact, who was, he's just been given a peerage. He's also just gone onto the board of the Countryside Alliance, which Chris, you'll know. So Charles Moore, he's the, he writes for The Spectator, formerly the editor of, of The Telegraph. He wrote a very supportive piece about uh, the fact that Field Sports Journal had interviewed Chris Packham. And his closing statement was, handle Mr. Packham with care, but also with interest. And to me, you know, Charles is someone I really respect. And I that's that's exactly the approach that we took is we were very cautious about how we did it, but it's it's you know handle it with interest as well. We need to do, we need to have a dialogue, which which who knows what could come from that dialogue. I don't think anything worse than, than is currently happening. Maybe talking to him might be a, a different tactic and, and and might generate some some different sort of outcomes, positive outcomes. So does owning a magazine then get you uh, free attempts to do McNabs? <laughs> if, this is, if this is your 11th. <laughs> so, you know, you, you know, that's really interesting. I guess there's anybody that works in our sector, yourself included, Chris, there's a bit of lifestyle. You know, we love what we, we love this sector. We love hunting, shooting and fishing. Um, it might be hunting, it might be shooting, it might be fishing, but I love them all. And some people, you know, are interested in different parts of that. You generally come into this sector not because you want to make lots of money, but because you you like the fringe benefits of the yeah. lifestyle. And uh, you know, I'm very passionate about it. Before I had children, every penny, every bit of profit we would spend uh, generate out of the business, I would reinvest in sporting um, and and uh, generating content. So you know, I've I, this certainly wasn't a free McNabb attempt. It was it was paid for. I actually bought the fishing in a GWCT auction. So it was three days fishing on the River Thurso for myself and a, and a second rod. And with that came three nights accommodation in the Oldster Arms. And I was shooting grouse over dogs a couple of weeks ago and connected some dots that the estate I was shooting grouse on also had stags and was only 
30 minute drive away from the Ulster Arms and the, and the River Thurso. And so I suddenly managed to cobble together a McNabb attempt out of the fact that I was up there from a GWCT auction lot that I'd bought last year, um, uh, or actually in, in this year's auction. T- tell us about the day, the day itself. Like, go, go, go through the. Yeah, blow by blow. The, the emotions, I want to know what the highs and the lows. Well, so uh, well, let's start 10 years ago, my first attempt. Um, uh, I won't bore you for too long. Um, so I got married to Selena in, in 2011 and uh, her wedding present to me was a first edition of, of John McNabb uh, by John Buchan, which is, if people don't know, it was a book that he published in 1925, which sees three high-flying men, uh, a barrister, a conservative cabinet minister and a a banker suffering from boredom and to alleviate this boredom they concoct a, a challenge um, whereby they inform three estates one for each of them that they're going to poach um, two stags uh, sorry um, a stag and a salmon from each of the estates the grouse weren't included actually in the in the book anyway uh, and and they signed the letter john McNabb. so that's how it came about so I don't know how it's it's gone from that book to the sort of modern day challenge. There's probably I'm sure the field will claim it as theirs, and good luck to them if they do because they've done a great job of keeping the the, the romance and the story of the of the McNabb challenge alive. But the modern day uh, challenge is that you catch a salmon, shoot a brace of grouse, and shoot a stag all between dawn and dusk. And so. My first attempt was 10 years ago, a year before Selena and I got married. She saw how much it sort of, you know, got hold of me as a, as a concept. Um, and so, yeah, pretty much every every year since then I've been trying. And I've had some, you know, I've had some obvious fails. And the classic thing you do is start with the fish because the fish is the hardest thing. You know, I, I think I've had five days on the trot trying to catch fish and didn't catch fish, which was, you know, and I had the rest of the McNabb lined up had I caught the fish. Um, the one time I tried to go and do the other way round, so stag um, and the estate that I was on, Ockham and Vermeeran, didn't have grouse. They had ptarmigan and ptarmigan are grouse species, so they would have counted and it would have kind of almost elevated it to a different level if you'd shot ptarmigan, a brace of ptarmigan. Um, so anyway, first thing in the morning, I went out, shot the stag before 10, which was very unusual and it was a royal, lovely 12-point old boy. And then I went up to the top of the hill and in the game books from the estate, no one had shot ptarmigan since the 60s. As soon as we got up there, 30 lifted off. And I thought, well, that's it. The chance is over. Walked around for a couple of hours. And just as we were about to come back down, uh, we got phone signal for the first time in a week. We've been stalking on this estate and um, uh, uh, near Rannock Moor. So we could see over to Rannock Moor. And um, uh, my friend Gary, who I was with, took cartridges out of his gun and got on the phone to ring his wife. And then two brace of ptarmigan got up in front of us. I shot a uh, brace, bang, bang, left and right, fabulous. They're mounted in a glass case in my office, which is amazing. And um, and Gary just watched these, you know, very easy birds fly past him. Um, uh, and so then it was, I had, you know, from midday until... Uh, it got dark to try and get the salmon and I fished every single inch of the river Orkey and didn't catch fish and was devastated obviously you know there's a crushing defeat when you don't get your McNabb but then it it becomes part of it's another chapter in the story it's not it's not the end but every chapter is literally another chapter in the story which makes it really fun all of this lovely backstory built up and literally since I'd managed to kind of pull and cobble together the opportunity on the Thurso a couple of weeks ago when I was up there um, shooting some grouse, you know, it's almost been a, I can't really sleep that well at night because I'm so excited about the opportunity maybe to pull it off. So then I get up there and 
uh, I've been watching the, I fish a lot and I moved, this is how committed I am to getting a McNabb. I moved from Sussex in 2014 to Scotland so I could become a better salmon fisherman. So I would be in a better position to complete my McNabb. Watching the, the uh, river levels as we were coming into my three days and I had a friend, a mutual friend of yours and mine, uh, Dylan Williams uh, with me actually. He was my guest to come fish with me. Um, and we were talking about the river levels and uh, of course it had been low water. They hadn't had rain since July and if anyone else uh, fishes for salmon it's you know it's, it's just such a fickle stupid stupid game I don't know why we play it um, and and water is you know it's either perfect or it's horrendous in fact it's very rarely perfect mostly it's not enough then it can be too much then it can be too colored then it's too hot or too cold or there's just all these issues that will prevent you from catching fish they haven't had any water on the first so since July so it's very very low but the river is absolutely stacked with fish. So, the, but they're all stale and they've been in the pools for ages. So first first day we got there and the ghillie sort of looked at me up and down. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, the sort of, yeah, which I know what that means, which is why did you even bother coming? So we went out and um, we fished and sure enough, I saw, and I know with the Highland rivers, if it's been low water and it's been stale, get out there as soon as it gets light. The fish move around at first light. So 6 a.m. as the sun was coming up, you've got a small chance when the fish are moving around in the pool before they settle down for the day. So we had all this activity in, in the pool that I fished, nothing. And the cutoff point that I'd arranged with the stalker, um, and he was the guy that had the dogs for the grouse, midday. If I hadn't caught anything by midday, McNabb chances off. So uh, fished and fished and fished and fished, six hours, didn't have a break, just kicked the ass out of it for six hours, no fish, McNabb attempts off. So I went back to the hotel for... Um, you know, cry into a pint and, and have a little kip and uh, got up at, you know, little nice afternoon snooze. Uh, some, um, uh, went back down to the river and uh, at 7 p.m. I hooked and caught a salmon. And that was just so painful, bittersweet. Any day you catch a salmon is a good day. But I caught it at 7 p.m., not at 7 a.m., which would have put me onto the McNabb. Um, so it was a sort of bittersweet. I've caught one, which is amazing, but there's no way I could get a grouse and stag in the time left in the day. So, but it gave me a little bit of hope for the next morning. So we went and had a couple of beers that evening, had a good natter about things. And, uh, you know, the strategy was, uh, we were moving down a beat. So we were on beat two, which is very close to the sea and occasional fish are slipping up fresh fish are slipping up so renewed optimism any salmon angler has this stupid optimism every morning they go out and uh, new pool uh, absolutely stacked the fish even more than the day before beautiful um, uh, bright morning lovely sunrise fish jumping everywhere and um, uh, I start casting and within 20 minutes I've hooked and I've got one on the line and it was on for four seconds and I thought, this is it, this is it, this is it. And I'm just about to lift the rod and it's off. And literally, the, I've never shouted the C word louder <laughs> on the riverbank. It was, and then just sort of crumpled on the side of the riverbank. And on, I was shaking like a leaf. I was shaking more than when I shot a Cape Buffalo. I literally, it was, you know, because I thought, oh my God, it's, it, this is it. It's finally going to happen. And then the fish was off and I'm, you know, I'm, it's done. So I was, you know, crushed. So uh, Gilly came over and said, right, get, get, pull yourself together. Let's get back up to the top of the pool. Anyway, at 8 a.m. I hooked and I was very quiet, uh, very steadily uh, reeled in, uh, landed the fish. Uh, at that point, I kind of celebrated as hard as getting a McNabb because I knew the chance was we, were, we would then get it. So um, I then hopped in the car, 
blasted up to the uh, the estate. So it's called Rumsdale Estate, loan, uh, owned by Lord Thurso in Caithness, which is 20 miles away from John O'Groats. It's about as far as you can go in the UK for some sport, or mainland UK. It's pretty north, 20 miles away from John O'Groats. So a uh, beautiful countryside. It's called the Flow Country. Um, it's pretty flat um, and that makes the, the stalking quite challenging and the grouse are very few and far between there's not enough to drive them so you have to use dogs and we had um, an English pointer um, uh, English setter rather um, called Flame who I'd shot over a few weeks prior who I knew was very good and within half an hour of arriving we got there sort of I don't know I had a photographer with me by the way of course this will feature in Field Sports Journal so I had a good friend of mine and very talented photographer Sarah Farnsworth um, we we got great pictures from the morning session on the on the salmon and then we're out on the shooting grouse um, over flame the uh, English setter and it was just magical absolutely magical he went on point big covey got up and I killed the first one and missed the second one and uh, and my heart was in my throat and then within two minutes he'd gone on point again and a uh, big covey six grouse got up and I fired the first barrel and I could have shot another one but I, I wasn't there to shoot a bag I was there to get two so to get a brace so I killed the next one and um, then it was all about the stag so as I said it's quite a flat country we had to do lots of we went out a long way in the Argo um, uh, to in order for us to be able to extract the stag. Um, and there's a burn, which is called the Rumsdale burn, which is a tributary. This is so cool. It's a tributary of the Thurso. So I caught my fish in the Thurso and ended up shooting my stag five meters away from the very top of the Rumsdale, which is one of the tributaries of the Thurso. So it kind of, the river was a really kind of, I don't know, it's like the kind of main artery of the story kind of running through the whole thing. And when I had to shoot the grouse, I had to go through a ford in my car to get to the where the grouse were. The stag wouldn't stand up. We, we spotted them and, and we were stalking along this burn. It wouldn't stand up, so I had to spend an hour and a half watching it until it stood up eventually. I shot it with um, a Rigby Highland Stalker rifle. Um, um, I've been very lucky. I've gone and done some some mega, mega things in my life. This was as big for me, completing something on my home home soil you know, in the UK, something that I'd set out to achieve 10 years ago and to be able to get it done and, and do it, you know, in such a, you know, such a lovely situation was really, really special. That evening, we got back to the Ulster Arms and word had got back and it's a very kind of hunt, shoot, fish hotel. I got a round of applause as I walked back into the hotel and uh, people were coming over to the table to ask me, oh, how was it? What happened? And I'm sitting there in my stalking gear covered in deer growler and blood and fish snot. And, you know, it was it was brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely how it should have been. Obviously had a dram or two that evening to celebrate. Um, and um, and that's it. That's that, that's my McNabb story. I mean, everybody who has an interest in, in field sports in the UK Go and have a go at it. It's amazing. It, 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 you know, it's a real challenge of, of, you know, I love the idea of being challenged with rod rifle and shotgun in a day, fur feather and fin. I just think it's, it's fantastic. And to be able to master all of those things, or whether it's not you mastering it, it's just you being lucky. However, it is, it's, it's just amazing. And um, like I say, you know, a, a ten-year um, uh, story to get the whole thing completed is just uh, it's, it's um, taken me to some great places the gillies the stalkers the the keepers you know they're the, they're the real heroes in the story it, uh, it it's about the the guys on the hill the guys on the riverbank who are and the guys guys on the moor that kind of help you through this and I think that's that's really special so um, yeah very cool thing to do and have either of you two gentlemen ever had a go 
I can't say that I have. No, it's. It, I would absolutely love to, but um, you you won't believe this, Simon. But I've never seen a grouse in the flesh, uh, apart from the one that I cooked the other day. Nor have I shot any form of deer with a rifle. They're two gaping holes in my experience. So I feel like it would probably be um, almost rude of me to try and get a McNab before I've done either of those two things independently. George, I can't wait to put that right. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of fun addressing that. Yeah, you work in the right place to do that. But, you know, I, I think it's um, I think uh, field sports is a, a church to welcome all uh, tastes, talents, skills. You know, I think and, and, and the McNabb, you know, go and have a, if you at least it will give you a chance to have a taster of those things. You know, I would definitely urge you both of you to go and give it a crack because, um, uh, you know, it is a great sense of achievement. And I think it celebrates all that's great about wild sport in the UK as well. Walking up grouse is fabulous. Catching a wild salmon, fabulous. Shooting a stag, you know, these are, these are, you know, Victorian, really romantic heritage legacy parts of field sports for us. And, um, you know, we must celebrate those things as often as possible and, and no better way to do it than, than trying to have a go at a McNabb. Chris, have you tried? I haven't. I'm not, I, do you know what? I've never caught a salmon. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm sort of joining up to your side. I'm not really, I, I've never really been much of a fisherman. I think it's partly because of where I lived. I grew up in Suffolk and, uh, and, and things like that. So you've probably caught more fish uh, than I've shot grouse, but having shot a fair few, I know you've got a serious number of fish. Uh, so between us, we've probably done it in a day <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so one, one thing that was um, quite no- notable, Chris, it was a real wildlife day for me beyond uh, the quarry that I was chasing. First thing in the morning, and, and George, you'll probably relate to this. Um, one of my favorite things to see on the riverbank when I'm fishing is a kingfisher. And I saw just before I caught my salmon, uh, a kingfisher. And it, it, it ran, I mean, it just, it sounds like it was sort of scripted, but Sarah was there to take a picture. So I'm not lying. Um, a kingfisher flew, landed not far from where I hooked a fish and landed it and then flew on. And I think any day that you see kingfisher is a really, really good day. Um, and then five curlew flew over the river, which the sound of them is just so magical and so special. And then when we were out on the grouse moor, we saw two golden eagles. We saw, I think, three or four ravens. And then on the way back, after completing the McNabb, we saw two hen harriers, which was absolutely amazing to see. One of the most amazing wildlife days that I've had, you know, it was just to see such a, an, and, you know, it would be an you know RSPB kind of wet dream for someone to go and see all that stuff. And for me, I was out there engaging in you know the wildest parts of the UK and engaging on a you know very base level with nature. And it was just fabulous to see all those other things on the day. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's the thing. It's a long day as well, isn't it? So you're going to see a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, it doesn't. Absolutely. It's not a quick job catching a salmon or doing any of that actually. No, no, it was six hours to shoot the stag. Variations of the McNabb. We must talk about it quickly because <laughs> I was just looking at uh, our uh, our first of April article that we put up yes, on the, uh, the London McNabb. Do you remember, I think I said that to you, Simon, didn't I? Um, brilliant. I was. I, I thought we must we must discuss vari- variations of the McNabb. But for those that didn't see it, it was our April Fool uh, before it convinced you otherwise. But uh, it was a 
a parakeet in uh, in Hyde Park, a salmon in the River Thames, uh, and uh, a stag in in Richmond Park. Uh, but uh, our designer Chris managed to um, edit these into every photo to make it look like someone had actually gone and done it. I have um, to say that of all the things I've written since I've been at Guns on Pegs, I reckon that was the most enjoyable thing to write. <laughs> so much fun. I just had to scroll down and I saw that Theresa May made a comment to say that she was uh, uh, simply marvellous, very kindly invited for Jeremy's <laughs> leaving dude, blah, 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 blah. Uh, George, that must have been you <laughs> improvising. No, 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 that wasn't. That was that wasn't me. I promise what? that wasn't me. That was uh, someone else. One of our what? erudite and witty readers having a complete laugh, changing their profile name to Theresa May, talking about Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, good lads. <laughs> um, so there are quite a few variants of the McNab, which, um, uh, and I have to say, I think the Field Magazine, our friends over at the Field Magazine, have done a magnificent job of keeping the the story of the McNab alive by having a challenge every year. Um, I know that they devised some new uh, McNabs, and it it has to include a rifle, a shotgun, um, and a fishing rod. So you can't deviate from that. And then one of the things has to be really difficult to get, because it can't just be an attendance challenge where you just rock up and catch a you know reservoir rainbow shoot a rodo <laughs> and race a brace a pigeon you know that's that's not that you know that isn't the challenge it has to, something has to be the kicker that makes it difficult and um uh i'm, I'm on the, the field's website now they've got from the, the classic McNab, which is the one that i did salmon on the fly stag and a brace of grouse then there's um the mcmarsh which is a foreshore goose a pike and a fallow buck um, the McVermin, which I, I really, an impressive rat, a pike on the fly and a brace of magpies, which I think. You, you see, know, that's that, really tricky. Yeah, really I tricky. mean, a, a brace of magpies. I mean, you, you've got to be like, you've got to be unbelievable for a brace of magpies. I mean, getting even the opportunity. Yeah, uh, exactly. That, that exactly. I could shoot 10 magpies from my balcony in London, Chris. Oh, OK, well, so you're going you're gonna to do the <laughs> McVermin in London. You can't do a chalkstream pike, but I wonder if you get pike of the Thames because you get a brace of magpies in London. An impressive rat. You could have a seriously impressive rat in London. You, you could. I, I think you'd have a CIC trophy rat, <laughs> a gold medal. I don't think you'd muck about with that. <laughs> um, so, no, there's some other very interesting... The, there's a, a McNorfolk, which is a, a brace of wild greys, a fallow buck, and a bass on the fly. Then there's a McAfee. African, it's a brace of sand grouse, an impala, and a tiger fish. Oh, um, so yeah, there's there's lots of variants, but um, I've seen lots of people sort of emulating it, and I, you know, it's a bit of fun. Uh, if it encourages people that shoot to pick up a fishing rod, awesome. If it if it encourages people who shoot to pick up a rifle, then that's great because there's so much to enjoy that you know. Field sports is so varied and there's something in season that's amazing every month of the year. It's not just the shooting season. There is, you know, there's roebucks in the spring and in July. There's pigeon shooting. There's amazing mayfly hatches. There's fishing in Iceland. You know, if you pick a month, there is something awesome, pretty close to the UK happening in that month, every month of the year with a uh, with a rifle, a shotgun or a, or a fishing rod. So if you can master each of those things, mm. it gives you a year's worth of sports. And I, that's what I love about the McNabb is it's sort of, encouraging people a little bit out of their comfort zone very often to do something that they're not you know as you say Chris you haven't caught a salmon before and you might pick up a rod and say oh my goodness this is it and I absolutely love it so just for people to to give them a, another chance to try some of the other amazing things um, that we have gifted to us in the UK then I think that's uh, that's a really cool thing yeah George I definitely think the uh, the Marsh is the one that we're going to pick you up yeah on. 
Uh, we'll, we'll do that up in Suffolk. A foreshore goose, a pike, and a fallow buck. That's very doable yeah, in Suffolk. definitely. Need a wire trace uh, for the pike. Um, but yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, it all just sounds amazing, really, doesn't it? And I think that, the, as you say, it's about the, the challenge and there being one element that is particularly challenging. And, and I think that's where the passion for all of this stuff comes from, is it, it's a, uh, for, for shooting and fishing and stalking. It, it's all about setting yourself new challenges isn't it and and um yeah you know there are easier ways to catch a salmon there are easier ways to put food on the table but the the challenge is what makes it special as, as much as anything else well the, the for, from a listener's point of view we, we must put out the uh, the fact that we welcome any suggestions of McNabs and the eagle-eyed amongst you will notice that our podcast goes out with the explicit tag next to it so uh so doors open really <laughs> yeah, just keep it keep it legal, please. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the uh, variation on the McNab, which is the Royal McNab, and I don't think this is something that's been written about. It's something that people sort of chortle about. If you manage to sleep with uh, your host's wife or the cook in the lodge, then you you improve your McNab to a Royal McNab. <laughs> so I don't know how whether it's ever been done, but. Uh, yeah, that's in celebration of, of, of successfully achieving your McNab. If you then, with the Jollities, manage to do either of those things, then yes, it gets upgraded to a Royal McNab. So if anyone has a Royal McNab that they would like to own up to, uh, <laughs> please send it into the team at gunsonpegs.com and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll read out on air. We definitely, definitely <laughs> will. <so. laughs> yes, very good. That would be absolutely awesome. Well, gents, I think... It's been really interesting and, a, you know, such an inspirational story. But I think we'd better sort of wrap up fairly shortly. So I've got one final question for everybody. Simon, I know that you travel the world a lot for, for shooting and stalking and so on. But if there was one place that you could go next year, caveat that you haven't been to before to do something, what would it be? I think of all the big game species that I've hunted the one that I will like to do multiple times more is a buffalo because I think they are very exciting and steeped in tradition and there's lots of history about them. I was planned and booked in for a double buffalo hunt in Tanzania and I was meant to be back literally two days ago. Had it gone ahead, obviously what's happened this year has thwarted my plans to do that, but that's been rolled over to next year. So I'm going to the Salu which is a very historic area in Tanzania to shoot a couple of buffalo. So that's that's the trip that I'm really keen to do, and I'm excited to go and do that next year. When you said Salu, I was I, I did want to double check you weren't talking about the Spanish coastline. <laughs> no, no, definitely, just, definitely just, not. Just, just just next to Benidorm. No, it, it was yeah. it was named after Frederick Courtney Salu, who was a, a, an explorer and a biologist and a hunter. Um, and it's a very historic area that's steeped in, in, in history and, and, you know, lots written about it um, and very beautiful. You show, me, you show me up there. Make me look like a fool. <laughs> I'll take no, it, un, don't worry. Un, 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 unintentional, Chris. Unintentional. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with it. Uh, George, where are you, you going to be heading off to? Well, I feel like... The one thing that I'm missing from shooting in the UK is grouse. But because we're talking uh, about foreign travel, I would like to go and shoot sand grouse in Kenya. I think that'd be amazing. 
Um, I've been at the watering hole when they come in off the desert armed only with a camera before, but I'd like to take a shotgun. I think that'd be my one. Yeah, I've heard a lot about people doing sandgrass. So I've heard some epic stories. That's that's a good shout. That I've shot them in in Namibia. Very nice. But I can really? I can attest to that being a good thing to do. Yeah, very good. They're, they're, there's a good flight of them, first light and last light. Um, they're tricky during the day, but yeah, flighting them in the morning and the evenings is amazing. Yeah, epic. You've you've definitely been there and done that. I'm very jealous. So for for me, uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Mine's an odd one. I'd like to do walked up ptarmigan in Iceland. Uh, and wow. simply because I think, well, first of all, I've never shot a ptarmigan. I really like to, uh, but more for the experience and everything else. But the altitude and Iceland and its scenery is something about it that I just think would be absolutely epic. And uh, so that's on my list. Is that, Simon, have you I've, done that? In, yeah, I have. And in Greenland, I would say Greenland was more spectacular because most of Greenland is a glacier. And um, Oh, fair shout. Uh, yeah. Good idea. Yeah, Greenland, Green, Greenland, uh, and I, I shot a muskox there, and um, Arctic fox, um, and uh, Arctic hare. Amazing place, Northern Lights, super cool. Um, highly recommend it. Really, really interesting place. Well, Simon, thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been really exciting to hear about your McNab and, and, and a really interesting chat. So, thank you ever so much for coming along. Absolute pleasure. To everybody who's been listening, thanks again for joining us. It's been another great episode, I think. Hope you've enjoyed listening to it. If you are enjoying the podcast, do make sure you subscribe. Do sign up to the Guns on Pegs newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday. You'll get all the great articles, including things like the London McNabb that we talked about before. And until we're back with another episode, thanks very much for listening and goodbye.